Good morning, everyone. I am excited and privileged to be able to speak with you this morning. Um, thankful for that. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, uh, open that up to Romans chapter 6. Um, if you don't, there's one in front of you that you can use, hopefully, or one in front of that pew that you can use. Romans chapter 6. We're going to get a running start into what I'll be speaking about. I'm going to pick up where Pastor Brian left off last week. And he preached um, from Romans chapter 5, 12, all the way through uh, Romans chapter 6, 4. So that's a lot of preaching to, to have done there. So I'm thankful for that. But I need to back up so that we can get context as, as to what I'm going to jump into, which is Romans 6, 5 through 14. And um, so we can get that context. Up until this point in Romans, Paul has been speaking about justification, our justification. He, he goes through lengths to show that there's nobody escapes this death penalty from sin, right? Sin has caused us to have this death penalty, and nobody escapes it. Everybody is guilty according, because of our sin. Everybody is guilty. And then, uh, and, and then that the only way to have that removed and to be justified is placing our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our justification, trusting in him, his death, burial, and his resurrection. Our sins separated us from God. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, and to rise again. And so trusting in that brings us our justification. That's the gospel, right? So now he's going to start to speak about our sanctification. He's been talking about our justification. Now he's going to move into uh, our, our sanctification. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 are going to be covering a lot of that. And spoiler alert, it's going to be the gospel again that sanctifies us. It's going to be the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have in our own lives that will be sanctifying us. Sorry, spoiler alert. But let's jump into this now. I want to back up to verse 18 and get a running start, and I'm going to read through it to verse 14 of chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's an important verse here for this section. So that as, in sin, reign, uh, as, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So a lot of reading there, lots to understand and lots to unpack. So what Paul is saying here, he's, he jumps into this idea that we are united with Christ. He makes that statement in verse 20 of chapter 5 that where sin, is, where sin increases, grace does much more increase. And he anticipates a response from the Romans in, in uh, verse 6, and he says, so what shall we say then? What, what he says is, is, might be to someone sounds so incredible that the response would be that, so what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So this idea that where sin is increases, grace does much more was increased, was so incredible that he understood that there would be a response from the Roman believers that would be, so, so we're supposed to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what does he say there? He says in verse 2, this is an important verse for us, by no means, may it not be, how can we who die to sin still live in it? And what he's saying is that, it, it, he's not saying that we haven't, we don't sin. What he's saying is that we have been transferred. And it goes back to what Brian was speaking about last week, that we were, uh, when, when Adam was our federal head, we were under sin. The condemnation of God was on us. The wrath of God was on us. But we've been transferred from that power. And now we're, we're in the realm of Christ. Christ is our head now. No longer is the, the first Adam, it's the second Adam that's our head. And so he's saying here in verse 2 that if we have, we're being, going back into sin would be incongruent with the Christian life. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit in the Christian life for us to continue in sin because we're not under the dominion or the domain or the realm or the reign of sin any longer. We're under the dominion and the reign and the realm of grace. And so it doesn't look, it doesn't fit for us to do that. So it'd be illogical is basically what he's saying there. And so he picks up and he, and, he, and he talks about our union with Christ through our baptism. He picks up this idea of our union with Christ in our baptism. And he says in verse 5, um, well, I, I, let me back up. I want to give you an illustration. This was an illustration that I got from uh, Je, uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, which I would re recommend for you, The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. It's a great book. But he uses this illustration to, to help us to understand this very thing. And he says this, During the long years of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, a Russian Air Force pilot flew his fighter plane from a base in Russia to an American base in Japan and asked for asylum. He was a defector. He wanted to defect. He was, flown, he was immediately flown to the United States where he was debriefed, given a new identity, and set up as a bona fide resident of the United States. And in time, he became an American citizen. The Russian pilot's experience illustrates to some degree 
what happened to us when we died to sin and were made alive to God. He changed kingdoms. He was given a new identity and a new status. He was no longer a Russian. He was an American. He was no longer under the rule of what was then an oppressive and totalitarian government. Now he was free to, to experience all the advantages and resources of living in a free and prosperous country. However, he was the same person. He had the same personality. He had the same habits and the same cultural patterns as he did before he flew out of Russia. But he did have a new identity and a new status. He now had the opportunity to grow as a free person, to disregard the mindset of someone living under the bondage, under bondage and to put off the habit patterns of a person living under the heel of a despotic regime. In effect, this Russian pilot died to his old identity as a Russian citizen and was made alive in a new identity as American citizen. When we believe, when we as believers die to sin or have died to sin, we died to a status wherein we were under bondage to the tyrannical reign of sin. At the same time, we were granted citizenship in the kingdom of God, and through our vital union with Christ, we were furnished all the resources we need to become, in, uh, to become in fact, what we have become in status. Because of our union with Christ, every believer has been transformed from the realm and reign of sin to the realm and reign of grace and life. So placing ourselves back under the tyranny of sin and death makes no sense for the believer. We wouldn't do that. And so Paul has an argument here now for that. And, he's going, as, and as he argues this, he's also going to set up the foundation for our sanctification, which is our union with Christ. And in verse 5, he says this. He repeats the gospel. He repeats what is true for us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, he will certainly be, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I want us to key in on this word united here. The word, the word exactly expresses the process by which a graft becomes united with the life of a tree. So if I was to graft a branch onto a tree, I have no idea how to do that. I didn't even look it up because I knew I would confuse it. But, but if I do understand that if you graft that, if somebody who knows what they're doing grafts that branch to that, that tree, that branch has a life in that tree. They become one. It's part of that tree. Well, this is what happens with us in our union with Christ. So the Christian becomes grafted into Christ. We become vitally united to him. We share a life with him. Paul's seeking to convey that Christ's death was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. He not only died for me, he died as me. This gives new meaning to the, to the uh, verse in John chapter 15, verse 5. It says, I am, uh, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? Apart from Jesus, we can't save ourselves. We've tried. And, and Paul just got done talking about how there's, that's, that's fruitless. That's useless. Apart from Christ, you can't justify yourself. You can't do it. 
All your works are as filthy rags to, to God. And now he's saying with sanctification, it's the same thing. You can't sanctify yourself without Christ, without the union, that, that fact that we are a part of him, without that, without knowing that the Holy Spirit lives within us. We can't be sanctified. We can't do that. If we try to do it on our own strength, we'll fail. It's the same thing. Paul wants us to understand that. And so we need to live in this realm of grace and life. We no longer live in this realm of sin and death. And that's, that realm of sin and death is where I, I practice all of, my, uh, all of my works. I'm gonna do this. No, Christ has done it. We're part of him. He died the death. He died our death and he rose again. We died with him and we have risen with him to new life. Verse um, chapter five in, in that final verse of 21, it's, uh, no, excuse me, chapter six, that, uh, verse four, to walk in newness of life. That's what we have in Christ Jesus when we're, we're united to him. But now Paul starts his argument here in, 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 chapter, in verse six, in chapter six, and he's, he says there's something that we need to know. And he uses that word, if you look at verse six, he uses that word know in verse six, and then he uses it again in verse nine. We need to know something. The reality of our union with Christ in his death, very first ch chapter, uh, verse six. We are united with him in his death. And we need to know this. This is fact. This is fact. He's saying this is who you are. And I want to give you some facts, some things to understand, some things to know. And he says, our old self was crucified with him. And he's going he's to make three um, statements here. He's going to use three clauses that add to one another. He's going to build on his argument here in verse 6. He says, first of all, that your old self was crucified with him. We understand that. We just got done talking about that, and our baptism is a picture of that, that our old self is crucified with him. Who is that old self? It's that old man that was, that was in the realm of Adam, that where Adam was his federal head. That's the old man. He was crucified with Christ. He is dead. He is gone. That old man is gone. Paul uses that same language in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He mentioned again in Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. This man has died with Christ on the cross. And so that old man is crucified. He's dead. He's gone. Never to live again. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. In order that, this is the second clause, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So what is that body of sin? What Paul means here by the body of sin is the body controlled by sin. It's our, it's, this, it's our body that is controlled by sin. We've all experienced this. That is not to say that, the, this, our, that's not to say that our physical body is sinful and evil. That's, uh, that's called Gnosticism. And that was declared to be heresy in the second century. So, so it's not like our body is evil and wicked. And what Gnosticism says, just real quickly, is that, well, if my body is wicked and it just does sinful things and I can continue to sin and do whatever I want, and it doesn't even matter because it's just my body sinning. It's not my spirit that's sinning. It's, it doesn't do anything. That's heresy. So we reject that. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is this body that we still have, this flesh, it reacts to sin. 
this is that body of sin that has to be brought to nothing. It has to be, it has to be made nullified so it doesn't respond to sin any longer. That's what he's trying to say, that the old man was crucified with all of its ways so that this body of sin, this, this sinful body that really is kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like a military beachhead where sin can stage its sinful acts. So, so when we're tempted, James says, we're drawn away by our own lusts and we sin and then sin causes death, right? So, so Paul's saying that that body of sin has to, be, has to be nullified. It can't respond to that. So it's like this beachhead that, dist- that for sin uh, to stage its operations to distort our God-given and good physical desires and sinful ways. So God has given us um, desires that we have that are good because they're from him. He's a great God. And what sin does when, it, when, our, when we react to that in our flesh, it distorts what God has given us for good. In other words, um, or for example, when we turn, it turns sleepiness into sloth. It turns hunger into greed. And it turns sex into lust. And Paul tells us that because our old self is dead, the body of sin, our flesh, has been brought to nothing. I, can think, this, I, I think this is where we can be confused a little bit um, it, when we talk about uh, if my old self is dead and the body controlled by sin is brought to nothing, why do I still struggle with sin? Well, we've not been set free from temptation of sin, right? We still do that. This is, we haven't been set free from actually sinning because we do that because we're still in this body. It's there. But what, what, we, what he says here is this leads to, if you look at verse 6 again, the last uh, clause there in verse 6, it says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We will no longer be under the dominion of sin. It, we, that, that we're not ruled by it anymore. That old man with all of its corruptness has died. And this body of, this, this body of sin that, is, that can be controlled by sin no longer has to be controlled by sin. Why? Because we're no, long, we're no longer in that dominion. We don't hang out in, 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 with Adam. We're dead. We're gone. We're now in a whole different citizenship. We're not Russians anymore. We're Americans, right, if I take that illustration that we first used. And so because of that, we can make choices to say no to sin. Whereas under Adam, I had no choice. I was going to sin. He was my federal head. I had that sin. I no longer have that anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so he, he makes that, those, those arguments there, those, those three statements that build on one another. And then, he's, then he, he helps us to understand um, exactly why we, we can continue to sin. If you look at verse 7, he says this. Hopefully this will help you here. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We have been justified. That word um, has set free is the word justified or righteous. So we've been made righteous. This is a legal transaction. It is our position in Christ. So even though because of my flesh, I'm still tempted, I'm not, in, I'm not, a, citizen to, I'm not a, a citizen of Adam's realm of sin and death, but it still tempts me because of my flesh. Because I still live here. Reality, I still live in this flesh, and so I'm still tempted. But, but positionally, legally, 
I am righteous. And so I can make choices now that honor God. I can go after God. I can walk in newness of life because of my unity or my union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. But this is only half of that. Verse 8. Verse 8 kind of repeats what verse 5 says. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 8 repeats what, um, what verse 5 said about our union with, with Christ. Our union with Christ doesn't stop at death. That would be tragic. So Paul's logic is that if we know that we died with him, we believe we will also be raised with him. How so? What does that look like? A death like his and a resurrection like his. Firstly, we see in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. This resurrection is eternal. It's eternal life. He'll never die again. If you think about that, Jesus rose from the dead never to die again because he wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. He was a new creation. He's the second Adam. This was a new creation. It wasn't like, like um, Lazarus, right? Lazarus was made alive again, but what did Lazarus do again? He died again. But that's not, that's not the resurrection that Jesus had. Jesus had an eternal resurrection, and that is our resurrection. We're in that. We're in this eternal life now, but we also wait for the rest of it to happen, right? Because this is what we're talking about. Our flesh is still struggles with sin. I'm still tempted. I still have to fight or else all the other imperatives that I'm about to talk about and we'll be talking about in, in, over the next chapters are, don't mean anything. If we were snapped our fingers and we didn't have any, any more uh, sin in our lives, right? Which is probably what most of us would enjoy, right? I would enjoy that. If, okay, I'm dead to, I'm, I'm dead in, uh, to sin, I, sin no longer has dominion over me, so I'll never sin again. Is that anybody's experience? Has anybody experienced that? No, there's only been one person who experienced sinlessness, and that's Christ. Hallelujah, right? Praise God for that. He is our head, and we are in him. And because we are in him, we are dead to sin and alive unto God. We are no longer in the realm of sin and death. We are in the realm of grace and life. And Paul wants us to live that way. He wants us to live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says that, that our life is eternal. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. And I lost my place, so I'm sorry there, okay? Well, yeah, or, or we will indeed live forever. But then also he talks about death has been defeated. Look again in verse 9, chapter 6. He says this, he will never die again. Second part, death no longer has dominion over him. Death has been defeated. Death can no longer be used against him or against us. He, it's defeated. Oh, death, where is thy sting? It's, it's been totally useless to us. I don't have to fear death anymore because of my union with Christ in his resurrection. There's no fear of death. Now, of course, I, and you've heard Brian say this before, I kind of fear about how I may die, but I don't have to fear death. Why? Because 
I live eternally with Jesus Christ. I have this eternal life. So if you kill this flesh, if you kill this body, I will continue to live in Christ. And one day he's going to give me a new body that will be like his body. And I'm looking forward to that. And that's a future thing. So it's eternal. He's defeated death. Death no longer has dominion over him. Therefore, it no longer has dominion over us. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died once to sin. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever sin? No, he never sinned. So why on earth would he have to die to sin? Where it says here, for the death he died, he died to sin. Well, what, what Paul is saying here is that Christ died to the penalty of sin by taking on its legal demands. He died to the penalty of sin for us. The penalty of sin is death. And when he died, he paid the debt meant for me and for you. As our payment, he appeased the wrath meant for us. We're forgiven because of Christ. Christ also died to the power of sin, forever breaking its power over those who belong or who are united to God through their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. For our sake, 2 Corinthians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him to become sin for us so that we could be made righteous, so that we could live this righteous life, so that we could have the power to live this righteous life. No longer living again in that realm of sin and death, but living in that realm of grace and life, living that out, experiencing that, the power that comes through the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And he did this, according to verse 10, once for all. He achieved a victory that will never need to be repeated. For it was indeed fitting, Hebrews 7, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. John Stott, I think, gives us a helpful illustration that sums up these verses 5 through 10. In his commentary, he says, Imagine an elderly believer called John Jones who was looking back over his long life, and it's divided by his conversion into two halves, the old self, John Jones before conversion, and the new self, John Jones after conversion. These are not his two natures, but his two consecutive lives. He lived a life under the first Adam, and he died with Christ, when he was justified through the blood of Jesus Christ, when he received them by faith. And then he was born again, right? A new creation. All things have become new. Living a life in Christ Jesus by the grace of Jesus Christ, by, faith, by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, he was a new creation. His old self died with Christ to sin. Its penalty born and finished. At the same time, John Jones rose again with Christ, a new man, to live a new life unto God. 
John Jones is every believer. We are John Jones if we're united with Christ. We died with Christ, verses 6 through 7. We have risen with Christ, verse 9. Our old life terminated with the judicial death it deserved, and our new life began with a resurrection. So because of our union with Christ, every believer has been transfer, for, uh, transferred from the realm and reign of sin and death to the realm and reign of grace and life. It's one thing to know that this is to be true, and it's altogether something else to, be, to by faith, live them out in our lives. Look at verse 11. So, so these, up to this point, these have all been what we would call uh, indicatives. They're truths. That Paul is saying, this is what I believe to be true. That you are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That old self, you're no longer under the dominion of sin. But now you're under this dominion of grace. And and so now he's saying in verse 11, listen to what he says in verse 11. So you all must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The reckoning of our union with Christ. Verse 11 is the first time in Paul's letter to the Romans that he exhorts us to do something. The word consider is an imperative. It's it's a command. It's the Greek term logizomai. It's an accounting term and literally means add to your account or to move to your account. Paul is saying, as those who are dead in sin, no longer under the realm and reign of sin and death, but under the realm and reign of grace and life, we are free to walk in a new life and to remember who you are. That's what he's saying, that word consider. Remember who you are. Reckon that to be true. I've given you these truths. This is what I want you to know. I want you to know that in Christ you died. And that body of, of sin has been, or that body, that fleshly body has, has been, doesn't have to react to, to sin any longer, to temptation. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's been nullified, okay? And that you are free now as in your resurrection to walk with Christ and to live with Christ. You have been united with him in his resurrection. And so I want you to remember that. So Paul's not calling believers here to pretense. In other words, we don't need to pretend that we're not tempted. We don't have to sit around and say, well, I've, I, I, don't, I don't get tempted or I don't sin. We don't have to do that. We don't have to pretend this. This is a truth, whether we feel it or not. Because if, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we find ourselves caught in sin, trapped and struggling with sin, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves. And Paul's, Paul's saying at that point, you need to reckon yourself because the, cause, cause when we fall into sin, when we allow temptation to let us to go to sin, we are not believing something that is true about who we are in Christ Jesus. And that, me, that union with Christ, we're not believing that. We're not understanding what Paul was just trying to explain to us, that we're dead in Christ and, we, and we're risen with Christ. And he wants us to remember that and think that over. We're to reflect and to recollect who we are in Christ Jesus. And so when we sin, we don't realize who we are. We've forgotten who we are in Christ. The term Stockholm Syndrome was created to describe what happened to victims during a 1973 bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. 
Throughout the six-day ordeal, the bank robbers worked on negotiating a plan with police to allow them to leave the bank safely. And during this time period, the majority of bank employees who were being held hostage became unusually sympathetic toward their robbers. And even after being set free, the hostages refused to leave their captors and later defended them. They also refused to testify in court against them and even helped raise money for the robber's defense. And so if we're honest, we kind of all have this Stockholm's disease with sin, right? We've been set free from the dominion of sin. We no longer have to respond to that because we are dead with Christ and we've risen with Christ. But if we're honest, there are times when that sin and that temptation calls to us and we respond to it and we love it and we may even excuse it at times. But that still does not negate the fact that we are in Christ, but we've just forgotten. And Paul's saying, no, I want you to reckon this. I want you to consider this. I want you to put it to your account that this is true. So when you are tempted, and even when you're not being tempted, preach the gospel to yourself. Remember who you are in Christ Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection. And he goes on in in verse 13 to give us some more imperatives. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Remember, we've already talked about the body, this body of sin, right? Our, 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 when we sin, we use our bodies, these, the, the members, and that's not just our hands, our eyes, our feet, or whatever, but it's, but it's our intellect. It's our will. Paul's speaking about here when he says, don't use your members as instruments to unrighteousness, to stop doing that. Don't do that any longer because that's not who you are in Christ. You don't have to do that. But he gives the next imperative. He says, so don't present or yield your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But he, he says here, but present or yield yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So he wants us to remember, um, he wants us to remember that our response ought to be to, sorry, lost my, my, our response ought to be one of put off and put on. And I've lost my page. Okay, here we go. Uh, Our response ought to be one of put off and put on. Paul exhorts us, do not keep on yielding. That's a, it's an active verb. Don't keep yielding your members to sin and your body to do unrighteousness. This is putting yourself back under the realm and reign of sin and death. This is illogical. That goes back to the beginning of the argument. It's illogical to anyone who has been reckoned um, them, or has reckoned themselves dead to sin in Christ. Instead, we're to yield ourselves to God as a person no longer under the rule and reign of sin, but rather under the rule and reign of Christ and his incredible grace. Paul in Ephesians uh, uh, exhorts the Ephesian believers to put off, be renewed, and put on. If you get, let's just take a second and and turn over to Ephesians. Because I think this really illustrates it for us and helps us to understand it better. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Those are the people in Adam. Those are people who are living uh, under the federal headship of Adam in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, 
That man has been dead. We put him to death. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on, and this is really what I want to focus on here because I think we tend to be real negative in in what we do. I'm going to put off. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that in our own strength. Rather, putting on Christ, clothing ourselves in Christ and in his grace and, and through the power of his Holy Spirit, he says, put on and, and uh, put on be renewed in your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness this is what Paul's calling us to God says be holy for I am holy therefore having putting away falsehood let each of you speak truth with his neighbors here's our members he's going to start talking about our members parts of our body for we are members of one another be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down upon your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let not corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Everything that he just said that was positive about what we ought to do with our members, our mind, our will, our hands, our mouth, our tongue, all of those things were all about the new man in the new realm. Now, I'm not saying that people who live in Adam can't do good things. They're not as bad as they could be. But there's no way that they could ever please God and live the way that God is calling us to do outside of union with Christ. This is an amazing truth, folks. I'm going to end here, but this is an amazing truth. If there was one truth I thought, I think that, that uh, if I was to look at in the scriptures that would blow my mind, it is union with Christ. How can I ever be? I don't deserve it, right? That's grace. But he freely gives it to me. And I need to reach out and grab that. So I'm going to end with this. Justification. We can't be justified outside of our union with Christ. We cannot be justified outside of the grace of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We can't do that in our own strength. Neither can we be sanctified in our own strength. Outside of our union with Christ, it can't be done. It's impossible. We've tried. We've all tried. And what Paul is saying is that, understand that you do not live in this realm of sin and death any longer. You live in this realm of grace and life. And so because you live in this realm of of grace and life, you're not under the law, you're under grace, that you, you need to now yield your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Consider who you are. Don't forget, so when we are tempted, when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to go down that path, we're to remember, we're to, we're to respond in a way, we're to remember that we are uh, our union with Christ and we're to respond in a way that would yield ourselves not to sin, not to unrighteousness, but to God and to righteousness 
and holy living. Three, four things I just want to share real quickly that I think kind of are born out of this that, um, that I think are good, uh, that we can have out of this response. Or I'm sorry, three things. First of all, what we ought to be considering. I'm bought with Christ's blood. If we remember that, we'll act as if we belong to ourselves. We owe Jesus Christ our lives and salvation, and we cannot live in disregard to his will. Secondly, I've been delivered out of the dominion of sin. That means the spirit of God is within us. And though sin seems too powerful to resist, that's not the case. We are the children of God, and we can exercise our authority over our sinful desires. We need to remember that. And then finally, I was saved by Christ specifically so I would not sin. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can't sanctify ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that we no longer live in that realm of sin and death, that realm where, where Adam was the federal head. But rather, Lord, we live in the realm of grace and life because of our union with Christ. So, Lord, I pray that we would remember that. Lord, not, we, we understand the Christian experiences that we struggle with sin. But, Lord, I pray that when we struggle, we would, we would, rather than run away from you, that we would run to you. And it would be a reminder to us that we actually are struggling. And that, Lord, we have the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And we no longer live in that realm, but we live in, in Christ's realm. And so, Lord, I pray that we would remember those things and that we would, as a body, as a community, Lord, we would be exhorting one another to love and to good works, that we would now yield not our members to sin and to our members to unrighteousness, Lord, but that we would today declare that we are going to yield ourselves to God and our members to righteousness and that we would live for you because we no longer are under that dominion, that reign of sin in our lives, but rather, Lord, we are under grace and life in the dominion of Christ, and he is our head. And it's in his name we pray, amen.